The text that we will be uh, reading from this morning is Colossians 3, and you can find it in that Black Pew Bible on page 984 or 5. Before we uh, dig into the historical narrative of 2 Samuel, which is where we're going to be in our study of the life of David for the fall, uh, I, I had mentioned a few weeks ago that we would kind of rewind and do one last sermon uh, from Colossians and speaking to uh, the matter of work. And I thought, hey, it's Labor Day weekend. What a better weekend to do that. Uh, I, you know, I had to go to the History Channel and find out a little bit more about uh, Labor Day and its, its origins. Evidently, it was set up uh, in 1894 as a federal holiday uh, because in the late 1800s, at the, at the height of the Industrial Revolution, the United States uh, average Americans were working somewhere around a 12-hour day, seven days a week, just trying to eke out uh, you know, a basic uh, living. In fact, you know, depending on the state or the laws or uh, some of the regulations at the time, children as young as five or six were, were, were moved into mills and factories and, uh, and mines across the country earning you know, just a fraction of what adults uh, made. So uh, obviously it was on the minds of people in the industrial age, and uh, we are a people who need work. And we are, all, we are also a people who need rest. Uh, that, is, that's, that, that goes back to uh, some of the most foundational things of, of creation mandate that God wanted for us made in his image. But I thought we would just look through some of the relationships as it pertains to work. And I want to go back into uh, some context because if you really want to understand the text, I know I've said this before, then you have to understand the context. What came before it? Who was the original writer? Who were the recipients of this letter? Uh, Not just taking things out of context. And that's all the more important when you come across a text like this where it's talking about uh, bond servants and slaves or masters and, uh, and that language obviously has all kinds of, of potential noise uh, for a lot of us. Uh, but I, I want us to just locate where we are uh, a little bit. Paul, just to recast it, is writing not to the entire city of Colossae. Uh, it, was, it was a small city anyway, but to a small church in this kind of uh, no-name uh, city. But he's writing to them uh, specifically the original audience, which was believers. He refers to them uh, as, as saints, as people who, who know the love of, of God. And so he's, he's calling them to a particular standard and application. We've already talked about some of the information of our union with Christ in this letter. And then there's these outworkings, these natural, some very, very practical. We talked about it in a relationship between uh, spouses and children and, uh, and even as we relate to one another with forgiveness and understanding and humility, we've talked about some of those things. Specifically this morning, we're looking at chapter 3 beginning verse 22. Bond servants is the term there, verse 22. Um, you'll need this open, I'll read it in just a moment. Some translations say slaves or Clearly in chapter 4, there's a little bit of an artificial break in the text there uh, in chapter 4, verse 1. And that's referring to to masters. Well, obviously lots to digest there. And it's estimated that at that particular time, again, context, early church, Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, there were estimated uh, to be over 50 million slaves uh, working around the Roman Empire at every level. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a society that as affluence and power grew, they thought that work was beneath them. And so that's for the, that's for the working people. That might have been people, not just menial labor. There were slaves that were uh, all kinds of occupations and, and various uh, you know, levels of education. Many of them were mistreated. 
undoubtedly many of them were abused. But some of that operated, like I said, at all levels, not just menial labor. Some people, uh, you know, became willfully, you know, indebted to someone, indentured for a season because they had to pay off debts. And so they were, uh, they were agreeing to be uh, servants and bond slaves. It was undoubtedly, it is, it's, it's obviously one of the sad tragedies that has plagued the, the history of human civilization. Uh, that, that slavery exists, that people treat other people as property. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is sad. Uh, there is no uh, dynamic equivalent, though, to what we typically think of. I'm trying to set the stage for things like African, uh, trade, you know, African slave trade or things like the more modern-day uh, practice of human trafficking. Uh, both those things are horrible and detestable, and, um, and, and obviously uh, that's, that's not exactly what is in view for Paul here when he mentions this. The Bible does not anywhere, here or anywhere, speak of uh, a person as a piece of property. They are nothing less than persons uh, with dignity. Historically, Christians actually have been the ones that have been most intentional at, at mitigating and trying to resolve the practice of slavery. Uh, nevertheless, this is the early church. They're a minority. Uh, the Roman culture is completely saturated at every level with forms of slavery. Some of it, like I said, is willing, and some of it was not because of war. The Apostle Paul here is not trying to bring about some uh, cosmic uh, upheaval or rebellion of cultural corrective. He's just saying, this is how you live in that system. And if you want to subtly change and infiltrate it, he's planting the seeds of gospel transformation. Bear in mind, of course, that Paul, the one who writes this letter, himself is writing from prison. And he refers to himself. He, when Paul writes, he says, I'm a slave to Christ. One of the letters, one of the people that's delivering this same letter to, to, the, to the church in Colossae is Onesimus. And he is a slave who ran away and was converted to Christ. And now he's being sent back with this letter to be reconciled to Philemon. He has, he has another letter for, for Philemon. And, and you can read about that. And it's about the, reconcil- the reconciling. But Paul refers to him as a person, not as a slave, not as a, a piece of property, but as a brother in Christ. And they are to be uh, reconciled and there's to be, uh, you know, this, this relationship. So this is not a reference, even as we read it, and we might think it's not a reference to the, the legitimacy of the institution of slavery, but instructions, like I said, for those who are living in it. Now, you may say, well, then why are we reading this and why are we visiting it? And that's partly because historically Christians have taken this letter and this instruction. There's actually a parallel passage, not entirely parallel, but a similar passage in Ephesians 6 when Paul references this. Why are you bringing this up, Troy? Uh, why, 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 how does this relate to Labor Day? Well, the, the most you know, natural equivalent that we have or contemporary reference to how we would apply this text to our lives would be in the roles and relationships of an employer, uh, a boss, and or a supervisor, and people who uh, work as as uh, you know as as employees. So, let's continue to look at these these aspects of implication, application, and uh, please stand if you would in honor of God's word. Just these few verses, Colossians three. Verse 22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity, sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Chapter 4, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. Let's ask his help. Father, we do need your help. You may be seated. We need your help, and uh, you know why. You know, you know the hearts uh, and minds of people in this room, their struggles, their temptations, the points of, of pain, the places maybe of apathy. People need, I need, clarity right now of mind, and we need wisdom. So please have your kingdom come in our hearts. Help us to fix our eyes that so easily turn in on self to focus on Jesus, our Redeemer, in his name. Amen. What would you guess is the average number of jobs a person holds in a lifetime? Four. Four. Ten, eight. You guys are all low. Actually, the the statistic between ages 18 and 54, not careers, but just different job changes, it's estimated about a dozen different jobs, slows down after that. Of course, ahead of that, it might be a whole bunch of more jobs added on. I mean, I was a lifeguard. I, I was a... I, I mean, I, I delivered newspapers. I, you know, I worked as an activities director at Equality Inn. Uh, you know, we've had jobs prior to 18 and within that whole scope, a lot of different jobs. Inevitably, we have been supervised. We have applied for jobs. We have been rejected from jobs. We've, some of you, uh, I'm not, I have no one in mind, have lost your job. Uh, some of you have found yourself in a place of responsibility for people you don't even want to be responsible for. Uh, you, you know, there's all kinds of things in between. And, and right now, at some point in the course of this uh, sermon and, uh, and considering it, there's going to be some people that come to mind. Just remember, I said a couple weeks ago, if you doubt the power of prayer, pray for your enemies. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, I, I, you know, I know this might stir up a whole host of different thoughts and emotions, but please stick with me. In fact, I might even begin here with some... Some levity, all right? So, when you, you know, when you apply for a job, you know, it's all great. You get the job, let's say, but that honeymoon is going to be really quick and over, especially, let's be honest, uh, you know, if that, if that job posting had verbiage like this. And I want you to just consider what the interpretation of advertising like this is for a job. It says, this job description says a competitive salary. What does that mean? What is, let's interpret that. Okay, I'll interpret it for you. We remain competitive by paying less than our competitors. (laughs) Here's a job description. Join our fast-paced company. What does that translate into? We got no time to train you, okay? You're just going to be flying from day one. Casual work atmosphere. In other words, we don't pay you enough to dress up. Uh, So come as you are. Another one would be must be deadline-oriented. Well, you know how that's going to shake out. You're going to have six months worth of work on your plate just by the time you start. Here's a phrase, some overtime required. Some overtime required. Translated, some work time every day. On top of it, and some time every weekend you might be working. Duties will vary. In other words, anyone in the office can boss you around. We are, quote, seeking candidates with a wide variety of experience. In other words, you're going re- to need to replace the three people that we just let go. Uh, you get the picture, right? 
Well, let's dig into this text, even if it doesn't seem relevant. And if it doesn't even seem comfortable, here are people he's writing to who are followers of Christ. And you and I have to navigate a whole variety of relationships in that environment. So whether you're an owner or a manager, uh, whether you're working an entry-level job, whether you're a supervisor, whether you're in your fellowship or residency, I, I mean, thinking of whether you, young people, it's you too. You, maybe you don't have a job. Yes, you do. Oh, I hate that I have to remind you at the start of school year, you're a student. That's your job. That's your work that God has given to you. What are we to do? How are we to navigate that? Well, the straightforward and wise way would be to ask two questions. I list them there. And I think the the text asks these questions and reminds us. The two would be, first, where is your heart and who is your boss? Asking myself in that context, where's my heart and who is my boss? Where's my heart? What is the duty for the bondservant in verse 22? The duty is to obey. And, and, and then for the master, the duty and the responsibility in chapter 4, the one who has uh, authority is to, to deal fairly and with justice. Again, both those things are very hard to do in a broken, fallen world. Work was not a bad thing, but sin has made it. It has made it difficult. It has made our toil, uh, you know, we we read of in Genesis 3. Because ever since the garden, it's been cursed. And even though we can find tremendously fulfilling aspects to our work, it's also very, very frustrating, challenging, hard, painful. The Greek word to obey here is also understood as under, or it is to, to listen, which is, of course is very crucial, as you can imagine, to listen and, and to understand with a view towards follow-through. But not with uh, just some eye service, he says, or, or, or surface-level people-pleasing. In other words, we need to not just be about the praise or the potential of, of, uh, of getting a promotion or you know, the fear of not you know, being screamed at by our, our supervisor or, or boss, but really at, at every level. And am I working, asking the question, am I working heartily? And where is my heart in that work? What's going on? When I say my heart, I mean the seat of our, our being. What drives us? What is our motivation? Where is our identity? If your identity is your job, your work, your career, that's not healthy. I don't know how else to say it. It doesn't matter whether, where, where you are on that spectrum. Our, we, that's not where our identity is. But it is where, uh, for, for so many, our calling, our responsibility, and a huge chunk of our time. So you ask yourself the question, where's my heart in this? Not talking just about passion, but where are my motivations? Where are my emotions in response to people at my workplace and the challenge that's there? What about the people who are in authority? Well, the same question pertains. Where's my heart? Some of you do have people. Some of you a handful. Some of you dozens and dozens of people that you're responsible to oversee. Where's my heart in that, Lord, is a good question. What's going on? Do I have a sense of pride and condescension? Am I hungry for control? Do you assume in the workplace that you have all of the answers 
and everything would just run smoothly if everyone just came and talked to me. Don't tell me you have never thought that. Do you assume that? Another heart-level question is, am I gossiping about other people at work? Why? Why do I smile at times on the inside, on the outside, but on the inside, I want to tear people apart? Why do I refuse to give constructive feedback? Why do I love giving correction to people? Why do I love giving criticism? Why can I not receive constructive correction? Am I working as a loafer? Am I working as a teammate? Or am I working as a tyrant? These are heart-level questions. What's going on? Why am I unable to have compassion for my boss? That sounded strange, didn't it? Why am I not able to have compassion for my boss? Why am I not able to have compassion for the people at work who frustrate me? You know, love hopes all things, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. If God puts love in your heart, then you're going to ask that question. What is it that innate, what is it, the reason that we have a hard time having compassion for others is because we don't try to put ourselves in their shoes. To recognize what life is like for them. But for those who recognize that you do have maybe authority, that's, a, that's, a, that's an authority, that's a, a role that God puts you in. It's not just on the basis of your merit. It's on the favor and mercy of God and his providence sovereignly to put you in a role of authority, perhaps a manager, a supervisor, an owner. That was delegated to you, and that's a role that God has. It's him. It's a humbling reminder that ultimately it's God who is control. And chances are people in your workplace, I would hope, for those of you who are Christians, that people in your workplace know that about you. Granted, I, I did, did, one of the principles that came to me just in studying this was also connected to the fact that Paul's talking here about children and parents. I, a wonderful book on parenting, you know, I'll, I'll weave this in and you'll see how it's connected, is by Paul Tripp. It's called Parenting, 12, excuse me, 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. And granted, you need gentleness uh, in, a, in a unique way towards your own children. Of course, you could bark at them louder than you ever barked at someone at work. Maybe, I don't know, but you get the point, right? Children are different than the people you are working from, working for, but you get the point. Our hearts should not be in, in response to the people that we are in charge of, one that is self-serving or selfish. Paul Tripp writes in, in his book, God's amazing plan. He makes us, he makes his invisible authority visible by sending visible authority figures as his representatives. This means that every time you exercise authority in the lives of your children, it must be a beautiful picture of the authority of God. In the lives of your children, you are to look, you are the look of God's face. You are the touch of his hand. You are the tone of God's voice. You must never exercise authority in an angry, impatient way. You must never exercise authority in an abusive way. You must never exercise authority in a selfish way. Why? Because you've been put into your position as a parent or substitute that, boss, supervisor, whatever. Some of you, your job is to be homeschool moms. I love you. You're amazing. 
Um, but this is tough because you have to just blend all this together. Your position as a parent is to display before your children how beautiful, wise, patient, guiding, protective, rescuing, and forgiving God's authority is. Here, here's my question. In, in the work environment, whatever that may be for you, and maybe it's a team that you volunteer on. I don't know, but are you, in the, in the way that you relate to people, what kind of picture do people in your work environment get about God's authority by the way that you exercise yours? Of course, it's easy to say, well, someday when I'm a boss, it's gonna be totally different around here. Hey, listen, I've been there. The number of times I've had to go back and apologize to previous bosses for the way that I acted because I never did put myself in their shoes. I get it, though. It's very difficult. It's very difficult when you have an unruly and unappreciative boss or workers or or employees who are unruly and unappreciative. Where's my heart in these moments? Where's your heart in these moments? I'll never forget going to a counseling training seminar and, and the author, uh, the, the uh, an instructor talked about how the propensity is as humans is to treat people as vehicles or obstacles. And this could be, a, this could be, a, this could be applied to a whole variety of, of contexts and relationships. But think about it in the workplace. We tend to view people as when we're selfish, you know, we view them as a vehicle to get what I want or an obstacle in the way of what I want. Does that make sense? We could be very, very friendly. We could be very, very agreeable. Go, we're going right into verse 22, the people pleasing, and the, and the yes, yes, yes. But inside, inside, a totally different story. We're not viewing people as humans. We're not to view people, human, humans as humans, not vehicles or obstacles. But humans, back to the text. You don't want to miss the the vertical component because verse 22, if you're serving, if you're working, if you're following through, you're doing so with a view towards awe and reverence, the fear of the Lord. How does that relate to our work? Well, here's, here's a way to look at it and think about it. Do I trust God to provide for me and to protect me because it, that, that's where freedom exists. Or am I so bound, beholden to what other people think about me because I'm so anxious, I just keep on trying to, to work and motivate others to work in some type of frantic way because I don't believe God will provide. Sometimes we don't rest because we don't trust God. Sometimes we scream because we don't trust God. Sometimes we don't speak up because we don't trust God. But the fear of the Lord is a a beautiful thing, the beginning of wisdom, we're told. I know I could say it for myself. There's times when we do overwork because we're doing someone else's job. Well, let's move on. Who is the boss then? Again, this is where we're kind of heading more vertical, and I don't mean your supervisor. This is the question that he has for the worker. It's a question that you could have for the supervisor, boss. In verse 23, let me read our text again. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing 
that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Our boss is the Lord Jesus. He has called us at times, even into this, the worst, the worst of work conditions, to be loving and patient with others, even our enemies. But part of the reason for this and part of the reason that we, we actually can do this is because we do recognize that the audience ultimately is Christ, even when no one's looking. Some of you work remotely. Who knows what that does for some people? I mean, there's always these levels of accountability, but you understand, right? Our audience ultimately isn't the person on the other side of that time card or screen. It's, it's the Lord God, the master, even himself. Look at verse one of chapter four. You, you know, masters, treat your bondservants with justice and fairness. Why? Because you have a master, a heavenly father. Paul reminds them, the master will reward those. Sometimes it might be a really long wait because it's an inheritance. <laughs> oh, I, didn't, I didn't want to hear that. I want it to be faster. But no, this is how it is. The real boss, the real audience is my maker. And he does have an inheritance for you and for me. And I might be mistreated by others at work. What am I to do? Rage on? Become forever restless? No. Verse 25 says, I can actually be free under this reality and banner. God will judge. God God knows how I've been treated or not. And God knows the dynamic. God knows the hearts of people here. God, God understands. I know that he will judge and he will make all things right. But when you look at some of you, you're tempted to say, fine, this is why I want to be my own boss. Forget this question, who's my boss? Someday I'm going to be my own boss and no one's going to tell me what to do. I want a two-day work week. That's right. From home. And I want to retire 10, 20 years before anybody else. There you go. Well, that might be a fine goal. But the broader question is, what does my boss want of me? Because as Christians, you're still working for the man. You may be retired. You may, be, you may run your own consulting business. You may... You may have any number of varieties and possibilities, but you're still working and you still have a boss. I'm glad that he is a trustworthy, good, tender father. The broader question is, who is my boss? The deeper question is, where is my heart? What am I fearful of? Why am I at times being lazy when no one's looking? What am I craving? Frankly, The enemies of the flesh, the world, and the devil would always try to persuade us to think that true freedom is when I have no one to answer to, especially when it comes to anything related to work. Does that sound like freedom? The ability to decide at all times on your own what is best. Now, I happen to see a study. I I, I don't mean to pick on kids here. Students, bear with me. All the battles that surround children, entertainment devices, uh, eating candy and ice cream, uh, 
you know, you know the whole picture. What, what, my dad was a dentist, okay? So, you know, maybe, maybe some bitterness will come out here. I don't, I don't know. But you get the point. What if we were just to let kids have unlimited access? There was a study done. Maybe some of you saw this. This isn't just like reality TV. This is more scientific. This is a study of what happens if you give children no bedtime, unlimited entertainment time, and you can eat ice cream all the time you want to. How did that go? Will children self-regulate? What, what did you say? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. What, will children self-regulate? No, they don't. They crave freedom. But let me ask you, if you can't eat all the ice cream you want and you can consume all of the entertainment that you possibly want, you get to set the rules. You get to set the limits and boundaries. Is that real freedom? No. Because you'll end up being sick and do stuff that's self-destructive. But anyway, freedom is not found in autonomy, in self-rule. I've said it before. No, it's not original to me. True freedom is found in submission to a worthy authority. Fine, you may say, but uh, my parents, my teachers... Uh, My unreasonable and petty, grumpy, demanding boss makes it a different story, perhaps. But not with God, not with the Lord. He is worthy. He knew we needed the loving authority, the perfect authority. And even when we're struggling inside, he comes and with his tender mercy, the father reminds us he even disciplines us because he so loves us. And then he restores us through sending his own son. Yes, his own son, which was not a cosmic act of child abuse. It was the redemptive plan of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world to rescue us because we were so craving being our own boss. We wanted freedom and we didn't want God even to be our boss. And we need, we needed and we do need to be Reconciled and forgiven. Verse 23, we work. How do we work? Where do we work? Unto the Lord. Unto the Lord is how we are to work. Not for selfish gain or praise. Masters, how do you work? Supervisors, unto the Lord, our heavenly master. And let me tell you, if you struggle with submission, and I said this when we covered uh, this same passage in relationships other than the work environment, that if you struggle with submission to authority in your life, well, let me assure you, you're not alone, okay? Every one of us to a person has a struggle with it, but I highlight that to say loads of people will be glad to get in line and complain with you if you feel that way. And of course, legitimacy aside, but what I'm asking you to consider is the person and work of Jesus because in Philippians 2, it says that he humbled himself and became a, a servant, Jesus became a servant. He humbled himself to the point even of death. Not that God's calling us uh, to that for our boss. Thank heavens. But even for people who are evil, is it possible to submit to an authority and still have your dignity and your value and your worth? Well, yes, it is. It is entirely possible. Unless, of course, you're waiting for that person to give you that meaning, value, purpose, and dignity and worth. 
Because if your real boss is the one, the heavenly father who gives you that, then it's okay. Then you're suited, you're content, you're better off. Jesus willfully took the lower position, became obedient to the will of God the Father in the name of love. And I am so grateful. I think you are too. And as we contemplate, as we think about one of the very reasons that, you know, we come to this table is to celebrate that very reality. When we contemplate all of the noise and the, the guilt, the temptations, the, the, the failures, the frailties, the, 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 the ways that we, we have not been salt and light in our workplace with other people. We, we, we need to come to a table like this and find strength and grace from God. And he gives it to us. If you're here uh, today it, and you're not yet a follower of Christ, it's only Jesus who has said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Other people have said that, but only Jesus, the resurrected king, can deliver on that promise. That invitation is is steady and steadfast because of who extends it. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, I invite you to surrender, to repent and believe. Jesus, by faith, if you would see him and he knows you and he knows me and all of our failties and frailties and failures. He he gave his life. He became a servant so that we could be reconciled to God, the father. Let me pray for us. Father, we look to you. Thankful that you've called us uh, into the light to see these things and to understand a bit more of your great affection and love for us. Lord, this is this is a practical word and we need grace and mercy to, to put it into to, to our lives and priorities. I think of people in this room that, that do have tremendous burdens because of leadership roles, tremendous burdens because of difficult, uh, unappreciative, just uh, a work environment where they uh, dread going, Lord. Are there people in this room and in our church family that are looking for work or looking for your direction and your calling. And I pray you would give them wisdom. And as they wait and as they seek your will, seek first your kingdom, I ask that you would give them patience and grace. Reminders, provide for them. Lord, for all of us, would you give us a a spirit, a posture of of humility, of of not thinking of ourselves too highly and not, not tearing down others, Lord. I pray that we would build up and value people around us. Every one of them, even the people we have to work so closely with and the people who wrong us and slow us down. Lord, give us eyes. Give us heart. Give us a mind that we might have the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ. Minister to us, we pray, even now as we come to your table in Jesus' good name, even as he taught his disciples to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread.